Welcome back to the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. To say that the pandemic was stressful is both an understatement and unnecessary. But for many in our community, the effects of the pandemic were only added to the stress of being an early career scientist, a person of color, or an immigrant. Well, today's guest, Thelma Madzima, is all three of these. We believe that there's a lot to learn from our frank discussion of the pressure cooker that was 2020. One note before we begin, we recorded these episodes in October, and then life intervened. So any references to recent or upcoming events may not match our current situation. With that, on to the episode. So our guest today is Thelma Medzima, an assistant professor of cell and molecular biology at the University of Washington, Bothell. A native of Zimbabwe, she got her bachelor's degree in plant biotechnology from Fort Valley State University in Georgia, and then did her PhD with Kevin Folta at the University of Florida. After that, she moved on to the lab of Karen McGinnis to do a postdoc. As one of the very, 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 very few Black faculty in plant molecular biology, Dr. Medzima has been active in efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion of several of these communities. And we're very excited to talk to her today about how she's been balancing this critical work with her own research and her teaching, and especially over the past few months. So, Thelma, welcome to the Tapri. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So our paper today is Epigenetic Regulation of ABA-Induced Transcriptional Responses in Maize, and it came out this year in May in G3. Thelma, can you give us a short summary of what this paper is about? Yeah, I was really excited when this paper finally came out. But just a little bit of a backstory, as a postdoc in the McGinnis Lab, I was involved in several collaborations in which we characterized a specific epigenetic pathway in maize. And we did this using a mutant known as MOP1 that is defective in epigenetic regulation. We were able to identify specific genomic features, including transposons, that induced a specific type of DNA methylation response. So following up on that, I realized I was very interested in understanding how these epigenetic mechanisms facilitate plant responses to the environmental stress. To be honest, my motivations behind this were as a result of my own experiences growing up in Zimbabwe, where drought hits the country very often and affects maize yield, right? And maize is a staple crop plant in that country. So for this particular study, we aimed to identify the extent of epigenetic regulation on abiotic stress responses in maize. And, and we did this by subjecting this MOP1 mutant to the stress hormone ABA and measured transcriptional responses using RNA-seq. And so we found that stress-induced transcription was exaggerated in the MOP1 mutant where epigenetic silencing was lost. And many of these misexpressed genes were transcription factors. 
And we also identified specific classes of transposons that seemed to be playing a role in these responses. So I guess the idea is that in the Mach 1 mutant, all of these transposons are being expressed. Is that the idea that normally they're silenced? And so in these maze lines where MOP1 is absent, all of his transposons are getting expressed, and that is sort of an inherent baseline of stress. Then you add ABA on top of it. Right. So it's transposons being misexpressed, right? So those should be silenced. And there's also other genes that are being expressed that should have been silenced. Right. So you're getting tons and tons of genes misregulated. Right. Do those plants, do those MOP1 plants look normal or are they pretty messed up? Oh, no. Those are developmentally messed up. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the MOP1 phenotype, the mutant, is really difficult to work with sometimes. And one of the observations that I noticed when I was a grad student that um, we all agree on, everybody who works with this mutant, is it's really sensitive to changes in the environment. I remember Mm -hmm. once as a grad student, we just had, I think, a few rainy days, right, in a field season. And those mutants just completely abort mission, stop flowering. And so it's really hard to get seed if the environmental conditions change. But then also, too, in any given family, when we grow these mutants, we observe a variety of developmental defects. Yeah, it really just messes everything up there. Right, right. But it really emphasizes how important this particular epigenetic pathway is. Yeah, I mean, I think I read in your paper, and I've forgotten the number now, 80% of the maize genome is transposons. Did I, is that wrong? No, no, that is correct. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. That's crazy. Because then it's like, what even is the genome? It's like, as I was pondering this, I, I was just wondering, like, why hasn't Maze figured out a way to just to, like, cut those out instead of silencing them? Hey, hey, hey. In the Maze community, we've learned to embrace these transposons. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know, who knows, right? There might be advantages that we aren't aware of yet. Only time will tell. But, yep, we accept them and we just work. <laughs> <laughs> So Thelma, you mentioned that these the the homozygotes are just like scraggly and super responsive to the environment. So you ended up doing this experiment by planting seeds from the heterozygote, genotyping, mm-hmm. and then picking the the wild type segregants and the the homozygote segregants as your comparison. Right. Do you ever regret your life choices in deciding to work with a mutant <laughs> like that? <laughs> I wish you could see my face right now. <laughs> Of how, yeah, I think I'm, yeah, I'm so used to it now. It would be nice to be able to, you know, maintain stocks in the homozygous state, but it actually really works for us in the field of epigenetics because you really want all else to be equal. Your your maternal environment, the whole, everything yeah. has, has to has to have been you, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So so these are very close genetically identical siblings, right? Right. Um. The, it is frustrating in terms of the effort you have to put into genotyping and also like when you really just need, like in the field, when you really need like a lot of mutant plants, you just have to plant more. I guess that requires you to have more field space then right, per right. experiment. I think this is all super interesting. And before you came on, Thelma, Ivan, and I were even talking about this, the way that having one kind of sort of ongoing stress 
makes the effect of adding another stress, in this case, the ongoing stress of deregulating all these genes through epigenetic mechanisms, then you add another stress, which is the ABA signaling pathway, makes everything worse. So the second stress is always appears worse. And it's true in your plant system, but I also feel like it's something that we're sort of feeling right now. Like the last six months, it feels like the pandemic has, you know what I mean, right? The pandemic, you've heard of it. (laughs) It It makes everything else worse. It brings to light inequity that was already there, but now everything is just thrown into sharper relief. Right, right. It's as if you're like more susceptible to just more chaos, right? <laughs> yeah. So you've been, you live in Washington State where the, the very first COVID cases appeared. I know Seattle, I guess Bothell, you're probably insulated from this a little bit, but you know, there were lots of extended demonstrations probably still happening now against police brutality downtown. And then of course, recently, all the air pollution from the wildfires. So how have you kept the low level of stress from affecting everything in your professional life? Right. Um, or have it's, you? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's been a struggle, right? It's, a, it's been a struggle for sure. And you're right. In many ways, Seattle has been at the center of the knowledge and response to the global COVID-19 pandemic, right? As you know, the Seattle flu study was the first group to report community spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. And I actually live in Kirkland, Washington, right? So the city that became the first epicenter due to that long-term care facility. So it's, you know, I feel like we've been really front and center with all of this. Yeah, you're like at ground zero in the U.S. Right. (laughs) I'll never forget that first weekend, you know, when we did so much. There was so much uncertainty right? We had no idea what to expect. And people were rushing to to Costco. Mm -hmm. There was like a lot of hoarding. And I remember that weekend, just hearing sirens, right? And Kirkland's generally a very, very quiet uh, city or town. And just hearing sirens in the middle of the night, knowing what was going on, right? And you knew where they were going. So taking you know, patients from the uh, long-term care facility to Evergreen Hospital, where at that time, a lot of patients were being taken. So it was very depressing early on. From a research perspective, you know, I really feel bad for undergraduate students. I feel like, so as you know, I work on a primarily undergraduate campus. Uh, So UW Bothell is a PUI, so primarily undergraduate institution which is part of the University of Washington system. And so we really try to give our undergrad students a lot of research experiences, but it's really hard to maintain physical distancing, you know, while trying to teach an undergrad how to pipette, right? And several yeah. other types of molecular techniques. And so for the undergrads, lots of research opportunities were canceled. And it's unfortunate because, you know, those experiences are really critical for the undergraduate experience and also in terms of our recruitment efforts. Personally, I was able to shift into focusing on things that I could do from home. So there was a lot of data analysis and writing. And at the beginning, actually, I think between March and April, I was actually able then to just put out three smallish grant proposals. Congratulations. (laughs) 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, That's two awesome. got yeah, two got accepted, and so that was oh. good. So, I started off productive, and I think that was like a coping mechanism. And other than that, I've also been working on data analysis and writing. Right. But you basically have had to shut down right your in lab research activities, which right. means that none of your undergrad. Uh, right. students have been able to do anything? Is that what happened? Yes. So yes. So the in-lab activities, in essence, have been shut down. We are at the level that is only critical personnel. And so undergraduate students don't really fall into that category as much. And so I'm the only one who could go in. So at that point where, you know, I'll be going in maybe a few days a week, just to kind of keep things going. But for the most part, things have, have had to move online. I did have an undergrad student who everything kind of aligned and who was really interested in computational bio and bioinformatics. And so we do have some more RNA-seq data that the student can work on. And how long do you feel like that's going to go on in your lab? Oh, man. I, my opinion, I don't see a back until next summer, right? I don't see us back until next June. It's, it's, it's been really hard because it is going to affect productivity. From a junior faculty level, you know, they, a lot of institutions did give us a year on the tenure clock right. due to COVID, but I'm not sure it's only going to be a year, right? Right. Well, it's certainly, it's, it's going to be at least a year, and that assumes right. that you can actually start back up and you know like there's a huge amount of momentum at that point as an undergrad focused right. lab you there's a good chance you've actually literally lost your entire skilled cohort isn't there exactly because you know the undergrads really only start pursuing research opportunities you know maybe in the junior year and so um, a lot of my students would have graduated yeah i mean i think that's the problem with this whole like i don't think it's bad that that people are getting an extra year towards their tenure clock. I just think that's not enough. No, I agree with you. I think, I think it is going to be like starting a new lab, right? I mean, granted, we have everything we need, but just like the way, the way it takes a while to ramp up, I do think that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to have to recruit new students and teach them molecular techniques. and. We're going to be doing this in, I do believe we're still going to be doing this in some sort of social distancing or physical mm -hmm. distancing type of setup. And so that also then significantly reduces the number of students that I can, I can host in my lab. It is going to affect the undergrad students significantly, which I work at a primarily undergraduate institute. But one of the reasons is that I really want to use that as an opportunity for recruitment. Have you considered how many MOP1 homozygous you could obtain from your backyard? <laughs> right. It's really hard to grow corn. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> In Seattle, Seattle, it's like, no, not enough sun. We actually, a lot of our studies we've been doing at the seedling stage. <laughs> so, yeah. So when you talk about recruitment and undergrads, I mean, I, I get the sense you're talking about really trying to bring people from excluded backgrounds into science. Is that what you were saying or am I just reading into that? <laughs> Both. I think it's one of the most critical stages being able to expose 
students from underrepresented groups to research in science. And that is, but I'm also thinking of it also from a general perspective as well. Right. So we're talking about this idea that you have one stressor and then you add more on top of it. And one thing I would imagine would be an extra stressor for you would be all of the terrible manipulations that Trump administration has been going through that are mm. affecting immigrants and immigration policy. So how has all of that impacted you? As you mentioned earlier, I came to the United States on a uh, student visa, an F1 visa as an undergraduate, right? So I have gone through um, so much off the immigration system in the United States. Fortunately, I'm now a naturalized citizen. Yay. I know. <laughs> Does that mean you can vote? I can vote. And this will be my very first time ever voting for any presidential election in my life. I left Zimbabwe. I wasn't 18 yet. And then I haven't been a citizen for any presidential election here. So I've been through the immigration system and I know how frustrating it is. And so I'm really, it is, I really feel sad for people who are on visas or are waiting on visas and the emotional toll that it will take on these individuals, right? During my whole process, I didn't have to go through anything like this and it was still stressful. I spent so much time and emotional energy always trying to stay legal and making sure that I have the right documents and I, you know, following all the rules. And it just feels like not knowing, you know, what to expect. Again, in this stressful environment, just adds to the, the craziness. I've seen this happen in my own lab. What I worry is that we're giving a terrible message to all of our international community about who is welcome in the United States to do science. Right. Do you think that's that? Do you think people can separate, like, this is the current U.S. government versus this is what American scientists think, or do you think it gets conflated and we're this is going to have like reverberation? I think there's going to be a point when we're going to miss out, right? And I think other countries are going to start to be more lucrative. There's only so much people can take, and we also don't know how long this is going to go on for. So I do think that we have to be really careful because at some point, it might not be worth it to go through all of this drama just to study, right, or to pursue yeah. a research career. And there are other places where people can go, and other countries are also, you know, appearing to be more welcoming. I know Canada has this point system where a lot of academics meet this, the requirements, right? And so there are going to be downstream effects of that, I think. So if you were talking to a young woman in Zimbabwe right now, and, and let's just imagine that you could actually get on a plane and travel to the U.S., uh, <laughs> what, would you, what, what advice would you give to her? if she was going to try and go to college somewhere other than Zimbabwe? Well, so actually it's pretty interesting because I was mentoring a student through the Convirin ASPB program right. who was living abroad and was really interested in coming to the United States for graduate school, currently in a master's program, but you know, was really interested in coming for a PhD program. And I'm not going to lie, 
we would be so lucky to have this individual working in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And I had to have that honest conversation with this person to say, you know, that might not even be possible for a while, right? Because who knows if they're going to be giving visas, uh, new visas anytime soon, and what types of restrictions are going to be added onto the, the visas that we're currently giving out for F1 students. So I would encourage people to still continue to apply for college or graduate programs in the United States, but also consider other places as well, Yeah, which is unfortunate to say. Yeah, I couldn't in good conscience tell someone they should put all their eggs in the United States basket. For sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Because who knows, things are changing almost every day, right? Uh, right? Sometimes there's a halt on a specific type of visa category. And, you know, these are human lives, right? You're putting people on hold as well. Is there anything that we can do, that the scientific community can do, that the plant biology community can do, immigration issues other than you know, witnessing it and wishing it weren't happening. I think what the community should do, first of all, like check in on your immigrant uh, trainees and your immigrant colleagues. One of the hardest things too about this whole situation is also how it's we are we cannot go home, right? right. And that makes it a lot harder. Um, so if anything happens in our home countries, we have no option of going home, which is a very difficult pill to swallow, but also just, you know, checking in and making sure that your, your trainees and colleagues are just mentally okay, right? So mental wellness is a big component. And again, it comes down to the, one of the themes that we are, that keeps coming up during these times is the important role of allies. It is up to citizens to be knowledgeable about the immigration process, which a lot of um, American citizens are not really aware of. And then standing up and voicing your opinions whenever you can. And it is just, it is going to take effort from everybody in the scientific community to make it clear to whatever administration we have that it is not acceptable to, to target or restrict admission of other scientists. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, there's not much more to say than that, I think. Aside from the fires and the COVID (laughs) and the immigration, I mean, one of the things that this summer has highlighted that the systemic racism that is absolutely pervasive in our society, in our policing, in our healthcare, and in our science. So you're saying science isn't immune? Then that there really is a, a complete underrepresentation due to exclusion of black scientists from our scientific faculty, our scientific communities, our scientific societies. Right. And you have been active in a couple of your communities, ASPB, the Mays community, to to try and start addressing this. So I wanted to take some time to hear from you what you see as the things that we should be doing right now to start fixing this. I think that there's multiple levels of action that needs to take place. And I cannot emphasize enough the importance of recruitment at the K through 12 level. That, in my opinion, is where 
the scientific community is losing a lot of our diverse students. It breaks my heart every time I realize, like, for example, with the few Black plant molecular biologists, several of us are foreign-born, right? So mm-hmm. I am pro-immigration, but I also am pro-making sure that American citizens are also part of the scientific community, right? So American-born mm-hmm. citizens. So to me, that's really important. And so K-12 through recruitment is absolutely critical. And then after that, it is basically retention efforts. So I still feel like there is recruitment efforts that can happen at the undergraduate level. If people teach, in my opinion, the intro biology type courses are another step in which recruitment is critical. And that's a stage when we lose a lot of our diverse students. And so there's been several studies that show that underrepresented minority students fail intro biology courses at a disproportionately higher rate than their majority colleagues. And so we have to be aware of how we are being inclusive in the classroom and also offering these students research opportunities in our labs. And that's going to take like just stepping out of your comfort zone and approaching yeah. these students and just offering them these opportunities. Can I stop you there just to, can you go? more in depth about what you when you think about being inclusive in the classroom what you mean by that yeah oh (laughs) I didn't even know where to start there's a lot of (laughs) things (laughs) Um, there's so many uh, things that you can do this just making sure that you are like calling on people equally identifying trends when students from different demographic groups might be falling behind I think one thing that I'm noticing in all of my inclusion and diversity efforts is that we have to look at numbers, right? We have to analyze the data. We have to take a step back and not just be caught up in our daily routines, but actually take a step back to see how everybody is faring in the classroom. And there's other things that you can do. We, you know, using examples and teaching is really important, but like making sure to use examples that are culturally inclusive. Again, highlighting research from studies from underrepresented groups, from scientists who are themselves also from underrepresented groups. There's just so much that can be done in the classroom. I can see how to add those things to a class so easily, but they're never part of what you do without any training. <laughs> so there, there's are tiny actions, right? It's just a matter of being aware. Right. And then asking. You know, it doesn't take that much more time, right? right? We just have to do it. To continue with other efforts that we can do, making sure that your graduate students are being offered the exact same opportunities. I think just even if you just have a spreadsheet, for example, and making sure that mm. Everybody, where you take time to reflect and make sure that everybody is being exposed to the same types of opportunities when you are introducing your trainees to other big scientists at meetings, are you introducing everybody equally? So it is going to take a lot of reflection on everybody's part. And then 
the higher up you go, it is really about retention. And that is going to require a lot of institutional change. We are functioning in a very broken system. And it is a very hostile environment to be in. I am not going to lie. I have, since graduate student, I think I have seriously considered quitting almost every single year because, not because I don't love what I do. I feel like I have my dream job. It is just that it is so hard to function. I I can only imagine. And so do you feel like this year is worse or do you feel in some way that members of our community finally like reckoning publicly with more publicly with these issues and just more broadly does it give you hope or does it feel just as draining it's draining the way yeah. we arrived to where we are right now is extremely unfortunate to say the least i wish i wish it didn't have to be this way I think a lot of, and speaking from the Black perspective, I think a a lot of our Black colleagues, we've been saying these things, but nobody Mm -hmm. is hearing us. And so, or nobody was hearing us. And so I think at this time, I'm a little bit too vocal for (laughs) what is the norm from junior faculty. But I feel now that people are listening and people are becoming more aware, we have to speak up so that hopefully there is some sort of uh, institutional and community changes that will happen, right? So while Black Lives Matter is still trending, you know, we just have to keep making our voices heard and hopefully that it doesn't stop. That's what I'm really worried that the momentum will die and then we just return back to the status quo. So since George Floyd was killed, mm-hmm. have you seen concrete steps in your societies, in your institution that you feel are actually moving in the right direction or is it still just talk? You know, I've been involved in some of the conversations about uh, diversity and inclusion for the maize genetics community. And I'm not going to lie, I am very optimistic. And the group of individuals that are leading these efforts are action-driven, and things have been going really, really fast. So I've been really impressed by those efforts, and I am optimistic because I was always surprised that like the maize genetics community values genetic diversity, but that nice. but nice. we're like the least genetically diverse uh-huh. <laughs> in terms <Yeah>. of <laughs> senior scientists. I'm still not sure if I'm the only Black <laughs> or one of few Black maize genetics professors, right? And always yeah. competing being a, a postdoc because there is a culture that minority people don't make it past a certain level. But I have been really optimistic about those efforts. I was serving, but I'm rotating off from the Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee for ASPB. There's a lot of conversation, Liz, that's going on with NASC, and I am... Yeah very hopeful about the things that are happening. So in terms of the plant science community, I I think we're going to do the right things. I feel that we are being heard and that our colleagues are are trying to take action. And I'm not just saying that. That's good to hear. So give us an example of what some of the actions that the maize community is doing that you find hopeful. From the last time I've looked at some of the conversations that have been going on in emails, they are 
I did have a, uh, some really good conversations with the committees and everybody is really looking at the multiple ways that they can be inclusive at different academic levels and also the ways that the community, I think one of my favorites is that they want to make it part of the norm to have conversations about inclusion at the meetings Great. that are part of the part of the main symposiums, right? So part of the main right. conference. I mean, that's that's one of the hallmarks of the maze meeting is that there are no, there's, there's no side symposium, there's no concurrence, there's no meetings that are supposed to be going on. Everyone is together in one room, the entire meeting, basically. Yes. And so making sure that these discussions don't get siloed. Right. They don't get siloed. They're not going to be side conversations. They are going to take they are going to be added onto the program. I mean, it would be pretty embarrassing if you're that one person who walks out when <laughs> we stop talking about science and start talking about inclusion, right? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's one of my favorite ideas that I've heard. Yeah. And so then, and then you, were, you were about to talk about your institution. It's interesting because in general, the leadership of the University of Washington and a Bothell campus, they are committed to diversity and inclusion. Doesn't always mean that because your president or your provost is interested in these things that your chairs are, right? And there are multiple, I think this summer, our vice chancellor of academic affairs for our campus put out some really definitive ideas in which they were measurable outcomes or that there would be ways of measuring outcomes of success, right? Mm -hmm. And one program that our campus, um, our Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs funded for me um, with an, one of my other colleagues was just to create a community uh, of support for minority faculty. And we're focusing on mental wellness. And so we are hiring a psychologist from Well Academic. And we're just going to have weekly group mental wellness check-ins, right? Which are important because while our colleagues are learning to be anti-racist, having these types of conversations is so emotionally draining. And so we are creating a safe space for minority colleagues that we can actually just talk and vent. But it sounds really important. Yeah, I think it is critical <laughs> right now. I think on the institutional level, allies are going to be important as they are on our campus. There's going to be a checks and balances type of system. I, I think if I understand it correctly, where deans check other deans' work, right, to make sure that, yeah, <laughs> right, to so make like sure peer that. Peer pressure. <laughs> right, yeah, so you don't want to be embarrassed, right? So just to make sure that it is, it's not those that are, underrepresented that are being disproportionately affected. I had to send a really uh, uncomfortable email to my colleagues on my campus when all of this started because a lot of our colleagues, and this is true for the culture in the Pacific Northwest, that, you know, these things don't happen on our campus, right? Yes. They happen other places <laughs> and they happen yes. in the South. But I had to give them a, my own example of how my access to resources and experience has not been the same as my white colleagues. Oh my gosh. 
Right. That's very painful. Yeah. I, so, you know, I was an undergraduate at University of Washington in Seattle, actually. Oh, really? And, yeah. <laughs> that characteristic that you mentioned, you know, nobody's racist here. Everybody's <laughs> right. liberal. It's very familiar to me. <laughs> right. And, and it, it takes being racist doesn't mean just outwardly, you know, using the N-word, right? And we, we keep reusing this word now, anti-racist. It's actually actively checking your own biases as well, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to be really important. Do you feel comfortable talking about what some of those inequities were or is that? Or- well, I'm actually very comfortable talking about it. And I had to come to that realization that it was important to talk about it, right? Because these things were happening. and. It's the truth, right? So tell us, so tell us what, like, what are you, what what was different between what you were, the support you were getting and what your colleagues were getting? So I have a classic example. So I was hired at the same time, starting uh, with a white male colleague. And the, my white male colleague got adequate lab space. And I had to wait 17 months to get lab space. And so you can imagine that that delayed my research progress. Yes. And that comes up at every merit review process, right? That I am not where I should be, given if you're looking at time. I was able to petition for a a tenure clock extension, and I was able to get one year. You can't really get 17 months, right? Because there's a cycle system that's going on. Right, but 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 given as we just talked about with the COVID thing, that you know it takes longer to get things set up. You should they should have rounded to two. Right. <laughs> well, I requested a year because I you know I kind of was told that you know that's probably the most reasonable that I could get out of that. It also was very frustrating when I found out that I was teaching more. FTEs than any of my other colleagues on the tenure track. So I didn't have ideal research facilities early on. And, you know, I got my research lab later on. And and then I had a higher teaching load. And, you know, there's multiple things that this affects, right? Because I now have this delay for going out for tenure. And, you know, if I am successful, my white male colleague would have already gotten a uh, promotion and the boost in income rate that comes with that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm, so I'm always going to be behind. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so angry on your behalf. So I don't think that, the, I'm not trying to make excuses, but I don't think that those in power were just taking the time to look at the data, right? right. And I had in terms of teaching, I had gotten so frustrated and I couldn't find out, I couldn't figure out why I was always so busy and had like a long line of students outside of my office until I actually had to go and graph the data, right? I had right. to graph. So that's a lot of time, right? Yeah. I had to go and graph the teaching loads for all tenure track faculty in my division. I know it was still a relatively small division, but still graph that data and it you know the numbers don't lie right right and why do you have to do that shouldn't that be something the institution is checking itself on right exactly exactly 
there's been examples of where there's two black females in our school of STEM. At one point, they had just my picture for both of our profiles, right? Oh my God. <laughs> right. It's just, all of this is just, it's, you know, like, how does that make you feel, right? I know, but it's like, the things you're describing are like a caricature. They're like something that somebody would make a composite story that all of those things couldn't happen to one person. Exactly. And I made this <laughs> point, and I made this point that if, if these things are happening at a disproportionately higher rate to those that are disproportionately underrepresented, then there is something wrong with the system, right? And there is, there is, there are biases and effect that are happening at every level, right? So it's not just one person committing these, for lack of a better word, offenses, right? It's, it's happening at multiple levels. It's a group effort. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, people are, so yeah, so I am a little bit vocal about it because it is important to highlight that these things are happening. These things are happening with people who, are, who have good intentions, right? These things are happening at institutions that value diversity, that are trying to be inclusive. And it's really hard to, to retain diverse scientists if these are the types of things that we're experiencing. And so the community of support that I co-founded at my institution was because so many members of my other Black and minority faculty kept leaving. And I was tired of leaving my support unit, right? I was tired of leaving my cohort, the people that I get to talk to. And, you know, we get to vent and have these conversations with each other. So Fortunately, I'm very grateful that our campus supported this initiative. And then hopefully that through this community of support that we can retain myself and my colleagues. I really want to thank you for coming on and telling your story, which we know is work. We know it, it's, it's emotional work for you to be here and to tell your story and to, to share it with you know, a big community. Also want to thank you for all the work that you've been doing in the maze and the Arabidopsis and the plant community. It's also really important and also is work on top of all this other all these other things that you're doing that are like your actual job. So we're we're grateful and I know that the listeners are gonna be grateful too. Thank you. So I, I absolutely wanna echo what Liz says. So and and thank you for for joining us, if someone wants to give you feedback or if someone wants to get in touch with you, how, how, what's the best way to do that, Thelma? Sure. I'm also on Twitter at Thelma underscore Medziba. And Liz, how can people reach you? They can also reach me on Twitter at, at E Haswell. And you can reach me on Twitter at Baxter Twee. That's T-W-I. And you can reach The Taproot on Twitter at Taproot Podcast. And we also have an email taproot at plantae.org and with that Thelma thank you so much thank you
Taproot is produced by the hosts in collaboration with the Plant A team of Katie Rogers and Mary Williams at the American Society of Plant Biologists. On this episode, we received editing help from Plant A fellow Anunya Mukherjee. Joe Stormer provides our transcripts. Thanks for listening, and we will return with another episode next week. <laughs>